Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And And this this is Storymakers Show. And today on Storymakers, we're going to be talking about getting outside your comfort zone. Woohoo! And... But first, (laughs) what are you working on? I am working on getting outside my comfort zone. (laughs) Yeah? Have you done any experiments on that yet? No. All right. Right now, we're in Angie's office on Which this is beautiful a mess. Sunday morning. Well, you cleaned up a little. Well, I did make a path to the chair you're sitting in. <laughs> so, maybe is this your comfort zone? Are we in it? No. Okay. Anyway, um, what am I working on? What are you working on? I am working on what it means to wait. And what I mean by that is, you know, there are people who finish a book one day and then they start the next book or if they mm-hmm, or if they write mm-hmm. 2 hours a day and, and 1 hour and they finish a book they like start again. I don't think a lot of people do that. But you hear that and it sounds so amazing. A lot of people actually don't. I mean, it's interesting like uh, there was a, a little interview with Elizabeth Gilbert and she was saying and they were asking about her day, like what her day looks like and she's like, "Well, when I'm writing, I get up at 4:30 or 5 and I write for, you know, 4 or 5 hours before I I'm interrupted by anything because 9 a.m. is sort of when things start rolling in and um, blah, blah, blah. So she has this one day and then she's like, and when I'm not writing, you know, I get up at 7.30 or 8 and I, you know, do meditation and dance and whatever she does, right? And so it's like, there are a lot of people like that. There are definitely a lot of people who are like, when I'm writing, it looks like this. And when I'm in between projects, it looks somewhat a different way. Mm-hmm. And I'm just trying to figure out like, uh, you know, am I starting the next thing? And part of it is, you know, a couple episodes ago, we talked about summer and mm-hmm. like lowering Unstructured our expectations time. and all of that. So some of it has to do with being exhausted, dealing with, you know, free-formed children interactions and um, and just dealing with other things on my plate besides writing. Mm-hmm. But part of me is like, well, I want to start the next thing, go back, you know, revise the, the other thing that's in there in the hopper. So it's just interesting. That's what, to me, because <laughs> it's my head. <laughs> well, I think, though, that speaks to the larger question of your process. I mean, we off, you, you have this great metaphor about, you know, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. Right. And the truth is, for some people, they might be... You know, as Elizabeth Gilbert is actually describing in her own experience, she's doing, she has a writing time, you know, a period where she's writing and a period where she's not writing. And it's not, she's not writing every day from that description. Right. And so. Well, I mean, I think she's writing every day when she's writing a book. I actually think she's pretty intense and full on. Right. But when she's not writing a book, (laughs) she's not doing that. And so for you, Elizabeth, are you. Non Gilbert. Yes. Are you a person who is writing every day, no matter what? Is the practice the thing that you're doing or is the project? Right. Right. Practice or project. And I, do, I well, right now, it's, I mean, the project is definitely motivating for me. The other mm-hmm. thing that happened was I thought, okay, I'll take this short draft that I have of this other book and I'll just like in this month that I have, I'll, I'll do a pass, right? And that was super motivating for me. And then I thought, well, wait a minute. I'm always in a hurry. I'm always pushing against, you know, mostly an internal deadline. But why set up another internal deadline and be in a hurry again? And this goes to like how you do anything is how you do everything. So I kind of backed off of that idea and all the energy kind of went out of it. Mm-hmm. So I, because I don't actually want to just have a practice. I really 
am fueled by having a specific project and mm-hmm. a specific goal with a specific deadline. So um, I think what I'll, what I probably need to do is pick a small goal and a focused piece of time in which to do that thing and mm-hmm. and give myself downtime as well. Right. So right, th- right. That, that small goal might be a given week that I focus on this manuscript or, you know, mm-hmm. something. I don't yeah, know. absolutely. So anyway, yeah. fumbling along with that, but that's part of what we do here is like model the fumbling along and the not knowing that is part of Fumble! the great artistic path. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want, yeah, all right. What? Well, I read um, the the Austin Cleon book. Mm-hmm. What's the third one called now? Keep going or mm-hmm. something. Keep going, and um and and it was it was really inspiring. I just think he's he's got the right idea, and a lot of it was about having a practice versus you know making a big splash or whatever. Yes, and, and I, well, you know, I think one of the things that um is pretty consistent you know the it is much harder to be successful when you're focused on the product in a particular way uh it's much well, easier to, to measure your success by externals is much riskier certainly or you know what i mean is that what you mean no um <laughs> <laughs> what i mean is that <clears throat> well it's that thing we've talked about before that whole anecdote about the uh, art teacher who graded students by weight and graded students by the perfection of a single pot. So good to remember. And so... Remind everybody what the result of that was. So half the class was graded by just the sheer weight of how much they created in the pottery class. And the other half was graded one final pot. One pot. And what they found um, was that people who were graded on a single pot actually were far less... Productive. Productive. And that they actually had less interesting uh, work and they showed less growth as an artist. People who were doing it by weight could experiment, play, toss it out. Experiment, play, toss it out. There was no consequence for failing to make a perfect pot. Which argues for practice over project in a way. Absolutely. And ironically, this... uh, I was reading an article recently where this guy was talking about Super Mario Brothers and how that actually is an ideal model for learning as well. And one of the things that you talked about this a little bit on a podcast, maybe. Maybe I did. But But it's the same idea, right? It's the same idea that if you have a goal and you focus on generation of content, you'll actually come out with a better product than if you focus on like that really tight focus of, right. and, you know, coming back with the learning how to learn stuff, it's, it's the, the other thing is you're, you're intentionally going to be engaging with the two different modes. I think you can look at the perfect product, that perfect pot in that example and say, you know, you're probably staying in focus mode a ton when you're looking at the product mm-hmm. and you're doing that kind of linear analysis right. over and over Whereas if you're doing it by weight or doing it by process, you're giving yourself the moments to go in and out of focus and diffuse mode. And, and those two modes, if, if you make an intentional choice to bounce back and forth between them, are going to spawn more interesting uh, associations, relationships, and creative solutions to problems um, than, than if you just stay in focus mode. 
Yeah. So that is really interesting. I will say that I mostly am continuing my three morning pages and those kinds of practices. Mm -hmm. So I do Mm -hmm. have certain practices that, although they've been less stable than they normally are. So even those have been slip sliding a little bit, but there are certain things that that are practice and certain things that are product. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, but um, yeah, great. Lots of things to think about. Mm -hmm. And now we're going to talk about getting out of your comfort zone. Yes. And going, going back to performance, learning, um, I've been listening to this book called Peak, and it's P-E-A-K, A-K. not like peekaboo. Um, and one of the things that's been sort of awesome about it is that they, you know, it's one of those popular books that sort of recaps a variety of studies on a particular topic. And one of the things that they were looking at is um, how comfort zone impacts growth. And so you have these, you know, we have these metaphors for our body, certainly, right, where our our body is hugely adaptable. And one of the things that happens is that you, let's say you work out and you're sore, right? We all know at this point that what's happening is you're actually sort of damaging your muscles. In a good way. In a good way. Like you're tearing the fibers and then those fibers are uh, healing. And in the healing process, they actually increase their capacity. I feel like there's a metaphor for editing there. Yes. <laughs> you're tearing it, you're damaging it, and then it gets healed and it's stronger than before. Exactly. You're so right. you're increasing the capacity of that muscle to do a certain amount of work. What happens is it then if you keep doing the same kind of work, it doesn't grow anymore. Right? So you so you don't you don't tax it. The capacity is grown, but if you don't continue to tax it on some level, you don't actually see any growth. And your 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 brain is actually sort of similar in the sense that you have these loops that you'll do. You create these associations in your um, in your brain about how to do an activity, right? And so we know, like for driving, that the, that you know we know what driving looks like. Our our brain is able to sort of bring together sort of an aggregate of very separate skills, like moving your foot. And and when you first start, it's so overwhelming and complicated and like right. scary and right everything coming at you from different directions. Right, right. So And then it becomes like you don't even remember that drive. Yes. It's really an intense learning curve there. Exactly. And I would argue because of the stakes that you are in when you are learning how to drive, for the most part, for a very long time, you are outside of your comfort zone. Right. For sure. You feel really scared about oncoming traffic, your timing, your, you know. And then it becomes like everybody's little comfort bubble. Yes. Right? I mean, that's crazy. So when it comes to producing work or to improving our um, own capacity as artists, the truth is we have to be aware of the places we find discomfort and to pursue those to a certain extent. So <laughs> for some people, it might be, uh, you know, the daily routine. Mm-hmm. For some people, for people like me, it's a horrible, <laughs> horrible, terrible thing. 
And that, in fact, I think like you would actually love if, if like somebody else. I don't know you that I would there. love. <laughs> but look, let's say, let's yes. say that like let's say we made this room sort of be perfect for you, which mm-hmm. might might be mm-hmm. might be close to that already. I don't know, but it maybe we'd put your moonlight poster in here, say yes. instead of the bedroom. There's no real wall space, but anyway, we make this you know we make this room feel good, mm-hmm. whatever that looks like mm-hmm. for you. And without internet, you spend an hour in here mm-hmm. a day do working on your creative projects. Right. Right. And if you were sort of ushered to the room and that was your time and you could sort of do whatever you wanted that counted in your book as I don't mean literal book, but you know, that for you counted well, I mean, as working on your project. Of course, this makes me associate with this other thing, which is when you're learning a habit or building a habit, the first step would actually be just coming to the office every day. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe, I, yeah, maybe there's this I'm, piece of, of the other thing. But anyway, like but the I'm way you build about a habit is, is does different. that sound terrifying and awful, or does it sound like wonderful? Well, I think what it feels like is I don't have a lot of confidence I could do it. Like, like remember to do it, or I think I already anticipate not feeling comfortable, right? And so, probably a great experiment for me. What mm-hmm. happens to my productivity when I do that? So let's do that for this week. Okay. Between well, now and our next podcast. Away. Unless we go away. Well, even so. Okay. So even if we doing? go away, I'm going to have an hour a well, day. If, well, let's go back and start with five minutes since that's what you're saying about habit building. I was really okay, kind of you want, Okay. Let's see what the hour. Tell me. So we go back. So we're going to give you an hour a day where? Uh, I'm just. Working on your project. Working on some kind of project. Like your, probably your film project that's coming. Yes. Zooming yes. towards us. Yes. Okay. And do we want to pick a specific time? I don't know. But the larger point being... We will discuss this more off, well, off Yeah, air. nobody really is that nobody excited about logi- our logistics. <laughs> that said, the idea, though, is that you're finding that place where you are uncomfortable. And when I look at our students, I would say that the one thing that is universal about writing and our, our, our the, you know, the people that we work with is that ability to recognize... Your discomfort as a growth is pretty much not how we orient, right? Our brain, uh, you know, procrastination actually is our brain saying, oh, this is going to hurt. And nobody's like, great, let's burn our hands on the stove. Mm -hmm. So getting outside of your comfort zone and seeing what feels like a risk. But here's the key. It can't be so much of a risk. You can't be so far outside of your comfort zone that you feel overwhelmed. So you find this little edge that is uh, going to scare you, but not terrify you. One of my wonderful, wonderful uh, online students, very accomplished writer, uh, told us all this week um, that she always feels nervous before a craft class. And I just thought that was fantastic. You know, everybody's reassuring her. We, your writing's so amazing. We love you. Blah, blah. But I said, that's so great. Like, I think that's great. You know what I mean? It kind of sh- evidences that you're going to come and take risks and it's going to matter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, we just saw the uh, trailer for the Pavarotti documentary. And, you know, I think of Lawrence Olivier. Or perhaps I should his, say Sir Lawrence Olivier. His, uh, that he had terrible Both of them. Fright. Both of them. It was a... They, yeah, he said, I, I, I go to die. Or some yes. Pavarotti said, I go, here I go to die. And... As he went on stage. As he went on stage. And 
you know, the stage for a writer is you're sitting there in yeah. front of your whatever your writing and, and, process and to, is. And to, no matter how much we come to know that we love writing and that, that, that like, let's say we do that and you love that hour every single time, mm-hmm. there's still always a part of us that is going to be scared because we're basically that hour we're, we're turning over. Uh, to this creative part of ourselves that is going places we're uncomfortable and, and that are unknown. And that creative part might not be uncomfortable with it, but the other part of us, the regulatory part, is is un- is going to be uncomfortable. Right. So, I, But just to say that, yeah. the, that the growth, we build our artistic capacity by connecting with that discomfort. So the idea that we actually grow as artists. I mean, it's interesting. You look at the evolution of people who are engaged with their art. You look at uh, Matisse, for example, right? Mm -hmm. He's continuing to explore different forms, right? So once he's, I think he was pretty old by the time he actually engaged with the paper cutouts, right? But it became a completely iconic thing. But I think it was actually in part a response to limitations on his painting. Right, right, right. So sometimes, well, these are constraints, right? So mm-hmm. in an interesting way, sometimes our discomforts and our, well, I guess not our discomforts, but sometimes our personal limitations be- can become creative constraints mm-hmm. against which, which and kind of in concert with which we create, which is, but I don't, I was going to start to equate that with the discomforts, but actually we're sort of saying with the constraints, you're not really pushing against them the way you are with discomforts or with the discomforts you're not trying to push against them you're trying to go toward them well imagine if you were saying i am a visual artist and the thing that i have always done which is painting i can no longer do or i can't do in the way that i wanted to right what do i do I can choose to stop, and there's a certain way that that would be a comfortable and safe choice. Or I can choose to explore different media, and how does that work? How does that play out? And you, again, it's that beginner's mind, right, that you end up getting to. So being able to sit in that place of discomfort, that fear, I mean, that's what he had to do. Yeah. You look incredulous. No, I'm thinking about Philip Roth because I was listening to Sigrid Nunez uh, in an interview with Sigrid Nunez who wrote, um, what is it called? A Friend? God, now I can't remember the title. But he won the National Book Award Mm. and um, her her recent, most recent novel, it'll be in the show notes. Thank you, Rachel. Um, So, uh, and she was talking about Roth and the thing about Roth is that he decided, you know, at some point toward the end of his life, but not at the end of his life, that he was going to stop writing, that it was too painful. Mm-hmm. And he just didn't want to torture himself anymore. And he'd sort of done what he set out to do, right? He'd created this giant oeuvre and he, and he, and, and many of his later works are considered among his masterpieces. So it wasn't that he had sort of weakened and dropped off, but he just felt like, why should I keep tormenting myself? And in a way, I don't want to use his late life analysis of his whole life to you know, I don't want to say that he was standing with a clear-eyed view of the whole mm-hmm. because, you know what I mean? Because he may have had a real different experience of it in midlife than he saw later. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? But because it's, I mean, it's sort of sad when you read about it. And he sort of, he sort of almost wished he hadn't done it. You know what I mean? He just, he has this very dark view of having devoted his life to writing. And he really 
you know, achieved as much success as almost anybody mm-hmm. can hope to. <laughs> and he was devoted and, de- you know, passionate. Oh, my gosh. I'm having sort of a panic attack just thinking about it right now. About his, his regret? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just. It's devastating. And, you know, it's not how everybody feels who's devoted themselves in that way. And I think in some ways... Why are we talking about this? (laughs) Well, I think you were talking about how uncomfortable it can be. Mm -hmm. And I think... And it just... And you said... And you were talking about Matisse. And you you said you can give up. You can just stop. Like, what if you can't do the thing where you can just stop? And I thought about Roth, you know, not because he couldn't, but deciding at some point. You know, and he was like... 75 or 80 when he decided it. You know what I mean? It was like... We were so much closer to that than I would like to be. But still decades. Still decades of good work. I think those are substantially different things. Because what I'm... The Roth. Yes. (laughs) Because he was having some other kind of experience, which had nothing to do with... with his capacities, right? right? So... Although I don't know, right? I mean, there's a way in which... That's why I sort of don't want to judge his whole life experience based on what his curmudgeonly older self thought about it. Right. But I think that with regard to this notion of being outside your comfort zone, that's a sad story about someone making some statement about their life that actually doesn't have to do with this. This is, I can see why you went there, but it's not the same thing at all. It's about, like, he sounds like he was maybe... Tired. Well, not just tired, but maybe like either looking for other ways to engage with life or looking for, I don't know what, but for people who are in a place where they want to be creating. Can I say, let me say one last thing about Roth and then I'll just let you steer us away because I know this is your, not your comfort zone. Okay. (laughs) Death, regret, old age, creativity, meaning. Okay. But let me just say one last thing about it. Um, oh gosh, it kind of came and went. So first of all, I just want to, I'm going to mention as I'm swimming back there that asymmetry is really about Roth in part and so interesting in terms of her, her own like brilliance as a novelist. Um, okay. So, oh my God, I just lost it. No, you didn't. What were you saying? But just that I fundamentally felt like what Roth was doing and, and the conversation we're having are different and that someone who wants to be engaged with creativity. And what he was up to there and whether he was tired. But I also think like he was trying to engage with something else. Like I think. Oh, that. Oh, I know. That's how, that was it. Thank you. <laughs> it's that I think part of the impetus, at least for me, and I would venture to say not just me, of being a fiction writer, is that you want to get to live many lives, right? That you want to, that you want to imagine yourself in many places, that you're curious about what it's like to be other people mm-hmm. and to have other things happen and to be other places and all of that, right? And that... Um, and so that Roth wrote all these books, you know, and of course, a lot of them are autobiographical or whatever. But, you know, there's this still you're all these places and people and things and da da da. You're living these many lives. And then, you know, you're at the you're at the end of your life looking back and it turns out you've lived this this singular life. And it's been mostly at your desk mm-hmm. and um, creating these other lives, which at the time seemed, you know, a big challenge and a struggle and a wrestling and a discovery, exploration, growth. And I think it could be hard to look back on that, to look back at like you're sort of the figure of you at your desk as your whole life and sort of, sort of settle into 
that singular life having been the one you lived. Even though I will just say, I think it's also a magnificent life. I mean, I, I read that and I felt sad and then I kept going. Okay. With this, you know, with my own journey, which has certainly not been as rewarded as Roth's. <laughs> so I do believe in it. But I, that was my thought that came and went and came back again. I mean, I'll admit I'm not entirely sure how this relates, but I I love it. And I love you. And, <laughs> and you love that we just got to press right into your discomfort. To- well, no, I mean, I think, you know, I don't, I didn't read the book or the article. Um, I didn't, you know, so I think you're engaging with something I just, I don't really have a lot of access to. And I'm having a hard time connecting to what I was talking about. All right, so. well, let's circle back. Okay. Um, Matisse. What a guy. He couldn't paint and he started paper cutting. Well, the idea then is that you're trying something new and being, you know, I think with Matisse, I think the point I was trying to make is that he had a a fair amount of pressure on him as a person who has already been recognized as being successful and masterful and and then to take on something new. Yeah, the risk of that. Yes. And so... Again, when I look at our students and I look at myself and I look at, you know, the different things, it's like sitting with that discomfort is the number one challenge. So the reframe of discomfort uh, as being not something, it's like people who reframe working out, right? So there are some people who learn to associate the pain that comes with a, a vigorous physical workout with pleasure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the reframing of that discomfort, and Tony Robbins talks about this, right? He talks about when I get frustrated or when I get whatever, you reframe it. So that when you're sitting there and you're like, I don't want to go sit down. I don't want to go sit down. That's now a cue to tell your brain, oh, this is my capacity building moment. And it's not about what comes out of it, but it's the exercise of increasing my ability to sit with that discomfort, which is ultimately going to increase your ability and your capacity as an artist. I love it. So that's all I was trying to yeah. say. No, it actually, actually... This could have been a much shorter podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, th- I think it's all really interesting. And it actually, the whole thing, including the raw thing and the discomfort thing, makes me feel like for myself that... You know, there are genres that I want to explore, mm-hmm. and um, and it makes me think. You know, maybe I'll take a class in in a in a form that I haven't, that I don't know, mm-hmm. that I don't understand. You know, um, although it also makes me think. You know, I'm sort of learning, learning, learning so so much about this form I've devoted my life to, mm-hmm. and um, you know, so it's just interesting. Like, is it is it is it com- more comfortable to leap somewhere? New or is it more comfortable to dig in and really deepen? Well, how about a, a you know mastery? jump a lahiri and let's write a book in Italian, Italian right? <laughs> in Which fact, I that's going to be get. the name of my next novel. Let's write a book in Italian. <laughs> so I love that, right? So she she really is somebody who is recognized for her masterful writing in English, mm. and she moved to Italy and she decided to write in Italian and be translated into English. Um, so that's and she then she of course does translation as well but I, I really for the maybe for the first time get that like 
you just, you have to keep growing. You have to find a way to be a beginner and to find your discomfort. There's a way in which creativity requires discomfort. That's my point. (laughs) Congratulations. All right. You have made it through this podcast through comfort and discomfort. uh, And it is now time for Steal This. Amateur Poets Borrow. Professional Poets Steal. What have you come across this week that you would like to take and make your own? Well, I think something I'm going to, I've been really thinking about is this idea of a, a purposeful practice. Um, again, coming from a lot of the stuff that I've been looking at around learning recently, uh, I think your craft class does this. It takes a specific activity or aspect of craft and really narrows it down. So with a purposeful practice, one of the things you do is you keep going back to the places where you are struggling. And, um, you know, for example, one of the stories, uh, I don't know if it was from this book or another book that I was reading. This book is not, is this book Peak? Yes. Okay. Um, about a violin player who wanted to play a p- particular passage uh, better and faster and felt like he couldn't get to this the speed and his teacher said, well, how fast do you want to go? And he's like, I want to play it with the same skill and speed as Itzhak Perlman, right? And he was like, okay, no biggie. Set your goal small. Right? And so what they did is they started playing the passage with a metronome very slowly. Mm. And then what would happen is the teacher then would increase the speed of the metronome. And over time... Um, they got to kind of where they felt like maybe it was his, you know, Golden plateau. Spot, yeah. And the teacher was like, so how do you feel about it? And he's like, great, but I still don't know if I'm, you know, doing it at the pace of the master. And she's like, you're actually going faster. Ah. So that intentional focused practice is not trying to master every aspect of a skill because the truth is you actually have a lot of and I think this is why people think it's easy to write when you're not a writer Mm. which is that we all have a certain number of skills that we really already have and so growth comes from identifying the places where we don't have the skills most of us can write a grammatically accessible Mm. sentence So it's not that. So what is the skill we're building? So then when you do your craft class, you're looking at something very specific and narrowed. So as we practice those small pieces, it actually impacts the whole as well. So for me, I'm really looking at, of the things I do, what would be the intentional practice that I need to engage in? And it's not the things I've done before. It's not the things... Uh, that are, um, and that's the difference, right, between the naive practice and the purposeful practice. The naive practice is I already know how to do this. And in fact, you can overlearn something. Mm. So for me, this next week, the thing I want to do is try and isolate at least one area that is concrete that I can work on that will take my whole skill set up a level. I want to say just, first of all, I think that's really exciting. And when you were talking about the metronome experiment, first of all, I was thinking about my mother, who is actually a very fast typist, um, or certainly was at the height of her 
legal secretary of stenography. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but she would talk about how, you know, so they do a typing test, right? A type inch, and they'd say, go. And everyone would start typing really fast. And this is typewriter days, right? right? So you make a mistake, like it's there, boom, like on a hard piece of paper. And, um, she, and so they would type really fast and make start making all kinds of mistakes, and they have to go white them out, right? Mm-hmm. So, and she said she would start really slowly, and she would get a rhythm going, and then that, and then she could speed up that rhythm. And she types like 120 words a minute, or I can't remember, but it was fast, whatever it was. And um, hi, Wendy. <laughs> yes, yeah, she listens to our podcast as she's falling asleep. <laughs> but um, but anyway, so that thing of like starting slow, starting and building pace, and it, and the thing of five minutes, right? Like starting mm-hmm. small and building also. So I actually wonder if we might want to do a, a formula for your for your work, your where we start with, you know, we could start with five minutes or ten minutes, and we could double mm-hmm. it up to you know an hour. Because if you if you start with ten minutes right the first day, second day is going to be twenty minutes, third day is going to be forty minutes. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So you're going to get up to an hour really quickly. Or if you start with five, then it'll be five, then ten, then twenty, mm-hmm. then forty, right? And then um, I know how doubling works. <laughs> So, but anyway, again, we can work out the details of that, but it was a thought I had. Yeah. But how about you? What is something you've seen or come across this week that you would like to integrate? Well, I'm going to tell you a funny story. So I was reading this book. Um, I think I can probably say what it is because I think it's doing well. And okay, all right, it's it's by Peter May and it's called The Black House. Black House is one word. It'll be in the show notes. Uh, It was recommended to me by a friend. And it's it is really you know it's well written it's beautifully written. Um, I used a scene from it for my craft class, so I was, I'm reading it. I borrowed it from the library and I'm reading it electronically. So, um, and you know the truth is it's been I've been a little distracted. You know I think when I'm in a certain place with my own writing it's hard, and then the various chaos. So I've been reading a lot of different things, but I but not with the same focus I normally do. Like I'm not quite landed on an audio book, and I've not quite you know. So I've been reading it, and I was sort of like maybe 25 or 30% through. And um, I saw in my library app that it was going to be returned. It was mm-hmm. going to be, right, returned the next day. I knew it was like I had one day left, so I was reading it that night and kind of. And then I got up in the morning, and it was still there, and I noticed I had one hour left. But it was like an early morning hour, and I, so I read sort of for that hour. And Part of it is I think the book picked up, like I as I was moving more quickly through it. Um, but part of it was that I think knowing that I only had a limit, it kind of gave it it's an external ticking time clock that maybe it, I wasn't feeling in the book itself. Mm-hmm. And I just started reading more and more and more. And then, like I looked at it that evening, and it was still there in my device. So. And I feel like that's occasionally happened for like a day or so, like after it's been returned. But so I kept reading kind of like, so there was this, there was this like sense that it could just disappear. And I had actually put it on hold again, but it's like a two week wait. So anyway, it's, it's still been there for like a couple more days. So now I'm like 75% of the way through. Has the tension dropped off? No. I mean, I think the book's own internal tension has picked up, um, but but it was interesting to me to think about, you know, the necessity 
for all of us in our crazy busy lives of um I mean you both you want to sink in. I think th- I think there are things about the character about which I feel ambivalent. So I think there are lots of different ways you hook people and make them want to go back to the book and want to stay on the journey. But one of them is a ticking time clock, a sense mm-hmm. of a limited time, a sense of, you know, you have to find out now or never and um and that, you know, that that it funnily enough worked even externally, but how can I of course always bring that in internally so that's my my theft of the week okay i'm not 100 percent sure but like what's well, an odd it's an odd experience you're gonna create when, a book that blows up after a certain time yeah, oh, and then go. sort of a mission impossible here is your book if you choose to well, you know, accept it about, like when we watch you know shows with our kids and we do limit like the day the number of days we do that so there's that but like the idea of watching just one episode like one 22 minute episode is is like almost insulting to at least one of our children right Mm -hmm. it's like and i'm like dude that's how we used to watch tv like there was only one episode that week and then you just had to wait for the next one yeah but we would then just you know you'd end up watching something terrible and uninteresting because you didn't want to turn off the tv because you didn't want to turn off the tv so i think i've always mostly watched in groups who were gathered for that purpose I feel like it was a lot how I negotiated my latchkey key. Well, I mean, that, then there was that. Yes. <laughs> youth. Youth. And you're just like, okay, I, I don't really like Petticoat Junction <laughs> or Killigan's Island. Green Acres. I do like uh, I Love Lucy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I hope you guys are. Or Donahue. We watched a lot of Donahue for some reason. I did not. I did not. Okay. All right. But anyway, get out of your comfort zone. Uh, kick yourself out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Until next week, exit your comfort zone. <laughs>